This 80s flick explores the complex terrain of friendships, aspirations, and the struggle to find one's own identity outside of the classroom. The story takes place at an all-boys preparatory school in the 1950s, where tradition and conformity are the norm. But Mr. Keating's unconventional teaching methods ignite a profound transformation in the lives of his students. By instilling a love for poetry, encouraging critical thinking, and inspiring them to seize the day, Keating inspires a revolt against the suffocating conventions of society. As we journey back to Welton Academy's revered halls, we'll discover a tale that resonates with audiences today, reminding us of the enduring influence of non-traditional instructors, the quest for passion, and the timeless words, carpe diem. So grab your copy of Five Centuries of Verse, stand on your desk to declare, oh, captain, my captain, and then join us at the old Indian cave off campus as Laramie Wells, Nicholas Pepin, and I discuss Dead Poet Society from 1989, on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. John Keating wasn't your average English teacher. I like Byron. I give him a 42, but I can't dance to him. To the administration, he was a rebel. I'm hearing rumors about some unorthodox teaching methods. To parents, he was a threat. Who put you up to it? Was it this Mr. Keating? But to his students, he was an inspiration. Seize the day. I'm going to do it! That made their lives extraordinary. Robin Williams, Dead Poet Society, rated PG. I'm Tim Williams, the mastermind behind the mic at the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Joining me on each epic episode is a guest co-host who's as crazy about 80s flicks as they are about wearing parachute pants and solving Rubik's Cubes. We're diving into nostalgic treasures we saw at the local theater, rented on VHS tapes, or discovered on cable TV. From blockbusters that make you say, I feel the need, the need for speed. To hidden gems that'll have you screaming, They're here. It's a blast to relive these old memories and share our thoughts on what made these movies so special. We reminisce about our first-time watch experiences, share our favorite scenes, and even discover fascinating behind-the-scenes tales about the cast and crew along the way. Haven't hit that subscribe button yet? What are you waiting for? Come on, do it! On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And hey, while you're at it, be a pal and drop us a written review along with a five-star rating to tell us what you think about us. The sportos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wastoids, dweebies, they all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. Take a day off and come hang out with us on social media. Just search 80s Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And don't forget to bookmark 80sflickflashback.com for more gnarly content. Get out of town. I didn't know you did anything creative. Want to crank it all the way up to 11? Become a supporter on buymeacoffee.com for only $5 a month. True. Or do not. There is no try. Click the link in our episode show notes, and while you're there, soak up the extra trivia and fun stuff that didn't make it into today's show. Thanks again for tuning in. Now, let's get right into today's episode. Well, welcome in, everybody. Thank you so much for being here on this awesome episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. We're kicking off season seven. It's kind of crazy to think that I'm in my seventh season of the podcast already. 
And what a way to, to kick it off with two of my favorite co-hosts that are always great to have on individually and even better when they're together for this episode about Dead Poet Society. So let's bring them on in. Welcome back to the podcast from Moving Panels, Mr. Laramie Wells. How you doing, Laramie? Uh, uh, Tim, the name is Nawanda. <laughs> I'll, remember, I'll try to keep that in mind. And I appreciate you painting the red the lightning bolt, bolt yes. on your chest. Yes. Your lipstick. Nice touch for the podcast, even though no one will see that. And then from Pop Culture Roulette, Nicholas Pepin. How you doing, Nicholas? I uh, just got back from a uh, play rehearsal for some doing a little Midsummer Night's Dream and uh, ready to talk about uh, this movie. Did, did you land the role of Puck? <laughs> uh, not quite, but I'm uh -oh. almost. I'm understudy. There you go. There you go. Dead Poet Society. I've been kind of I've been wanting to rewatch this for a while. This is one I had not seen in a while. No, we'll kind of get to that in a minute. But uh, it's also the first movie that we've done on the podcast with Robin Williams, which is almost a travesty. Oh, and, it, and it's also. Really? And it's also the last one he made in the 80s. So kind of did that backwards. But uh, we'll we'll get into that as we get going. But uh, you guys know how we start the show. When did you guys see Dead Poet Society for the first time? I will middle, start with middle learning. school English class. Really? I can probably guarantee you that's what oh, it was. Wow. Okay. Um, I know I saw it in school. <laughs> for the first time? Maybe. Honestly. Okay. Honestly. Okay. May have been. Shocker. I didn't see this one in the theaters. Okay. I can almost guarantee that that given that my my at least my father, but probably both of my parents are big Robin Williams fans. Mm -hmm. We we definitely would have rented this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not sure it would have resonated with me. I mean, I I, I liked it. I've always liked this movie, mm -hmm. but uh it, it isn't until later in life when I saw it and that it resonated with me and then watching it again for this it, it changed how i thought about it again yeah yeah I, i'm sure we'll get into that watching this as an adult versus as a child gives you very different perspectives on some things but uh but yeah so i did see this one in the theater i'm pretty sure i did uh, we were big robin williams fans as as well and our family watched mork and mindy on tv of course i didn't see a lot of his early 80s movies because mainly because they're rated r like the world according to garp and uh that moscow weird though. yeah moscow on the hudson i think i saw like much later but a tv version but i had seen uh good morning vietnam which was in 87 i think and i think there was another one that came out i'm looking to his filmography i'll remember but Club but Paradise, yeah, 80s? Club Paradise was 80s. Yeah, that was like 85, 86. Yeah, so, you know, he had some, like, not as popular movies that I'm sure I saw as well. I saw Popeye as a kid. I remember going to the theater to see that. So, but, you know, this is when he was really kind of, you know, coming off of Good Morning Vietnam, he was leaning more into more dramatic than just straight-up comedy roles. So I was excited to see this one and uh, definitely remember seeing it at the theater. But uh, when did you guys see it last before rewatching it for the podcast? It had been a, it, it's been a while. I mean, this yeah. isn't one that you're just going to go. I want to watch Dead right. Poets Society. Right, exactly. Not because it's not good, just no. because it's so heavy. Yeah, it's very um, heavy. So yeah, it. I, I couldn't tell you exactly when, but it it it's been a while. Yeah. What about you, Nicholas? Same. It, it it's such a heavy watch. It's not an easy watch. It's mm -hmm. it's it's maybe one of the better movies I've ever ever done with you. But it's not, it's not, uh, um, what does that say about the episodes we've done? Well, I mean, I, we've done some pretty good movies, but yeah. not necessarily like good, like cult following. Movies, oh yeah. Yeah. Like yeah quality, yeah. like 
this has got to be, you know, towards the top of the list, but it's not an easy film to watch. You don't just pop it in. It's not a, it's not really a feel good movie, you know? Yeah. So, exactly. But yeah. it is, um, I have the, uh, good, good morning, Vietnam dead poet society two pack. So I'm good to go. Oh, if wow. you ever get around to that. Oh one. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll definitely, we'll, we'll definitely get around to that one for sure. Yeah. It's been a long time for me as well. Like I honestly don't remember the last time I watched this from beginning to end. So meaning that was probably either in high school or maybe even college because I know I had a VHS copy of this because this was at the top of my, you know, all time favorite movies through the 90s. It was one of my favorite Robin Williams movies. I, I can't I won't put it there now because I think Ms. Doubtfire is going to win that battle and Aladdin, even though it's animated, would probably be higher on my list. But this is still one of his best movies, even though looking back on it now he's really not in it that much no. it really doesn't no. focus on his character as much as it does all the the guy the boys in the class yeah it's definitely very light on robin williams and mm -hmm. i would say even the comedic elements he brings to it are mm -hmm. very sub subdued yeah yeah exactly and i think that was going into it i was expecting more of the comedy moments and then rewatching it now, it's like the comedy moments almost felt like they weren't needed. It was like you didn't need some of the jokes that were there, but I know well, it was there because it was Robin Williams. And then there's the one where he's reading to uh, the boys in class and the, you just see them laughing and you can clearly tell it's an ADR. Mm -hmm. they, they, yeah. they recorded the jokes later. Right, right. So part of me was like, I'd love to know what, you know what, what didn't shtick, make it what right. stick he was actually doing that was making them all laugh <laughs> oh yeah well, I, I mean i know uh he has a history of them having like alternate cuts mm -hmm. because you know they have to let him kind of run wild oh yeah and then then get him to do the script mm -hmm. and i you know and i did read a little bit that they had you know they they let him ad lib a little bit but they you know they tried to keep him to the script a lot more mm -hmm. than than he's probably used to so since we're there let's go ahead and jump into uh story origin and pre-production and we'll cover some of that as well so the screenplay for the movie was based on the personal experiences of the screenwriter tom shulman who actually attended montgomery bell academy in nashville tennessee and was inspired by his teacher samuel pickering jeff canoe was initially chosen to direct the film and had planned to cast liam neeson as keating there's a interesting casting choice i could uh, see it though yeah oh yeah i, I could yeah but just I don't think of you know 80s and Liam Neeson. I don't think of him as that. I mean, he wasn't that big of a star. Of course, Robin Williams is the only person that really anybody knew about in this movie anyway, uh, if they were going for all unknowns. But other actors considered for the role in early development were Dustin Hoffman, which I could see, Mel Gibson, which would have been an interesting take in 89, uh, Tom Hanks, and Mickey Rourke. Definitely don't see. I, Ooh, to... I don't know about Mickey Rourke. Yeah. yeah. A lot of those are harder to see because we have like Mickey Rourke today. Yeah, or, exactly. Yeah. Or Liam Neeson today. Like I right. think of Liam Neeson from Taken and, you know, <laughs> yeah, that, I don't, I don't necessarily think of that. That would have been like, you know, the substitute instead of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it would have been the treat Williams version of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. But yeah, but eventually Robin Williams was the preferred choice of the studio, uh, Disney, which was released under their Touchstone Pictures division. He was their preferred choice, but on the first day of shooting, when they originally were going to film it outside of Atlanta, 
he did not show up on set due to his unwillingness to work with Canoe. So at that point, the studio said, ah, we'll replace the director, which was probably a good idea. <laughs> In late 1988, Peter Weir met with Jeffrey Katzenberg at Disney, who suggested that he make Dead Poet Society while waiting for Gerard Depardieu to become available for a green card, which was the, the movie he actually wanted to direct first. Weir was captivated by the script and returned to Los Angeles six weeks later to cast the principal characters. And Peter Weir, we'll talk about him in a little bit as well, so, so you're more familiar with him. But in the original manuscript, Keating had been ill and slowly dying of Hodgkin lymphoma with the scene showing him on his deathbed in the hospital. This was removed by director Peter Weir, who deemed it unnecessary, claiming this would focus audiences on Keating's illness and not on what he stood for. This is probably my favorite note as well. Early notes from Disney on the script also suggested making the boy's passion dancing rather than poetry, as well as a new title called Sultans of Swing, focusing on the character of Mr. Keating rather than on the boys themselves. But both of these ideas were dismissed very quickly. Thank you. And rightfully yeah. so. <laughs> I don't think we'd be talking about a movie called Sultans of Swing 40 years later. No. No, and I would have assumed that that would have, mainly because I'm probably thinking of the Eagle song, but uh, I would have thought it would have been a baseball movie. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I could see that too, yeah. Maybe they were trying to, you know, come off the, the success of Dirty Dancing. Dancing was a big, was probably a little more popular than poetry was at the time. Well, when was Footloose compared to Footloose, Dirty Dancing? Like, wasn't that uh, around the same time? No, Footloose was 84 oh, and okay. Dirty Dancing was 86, so a couple of years had passed. I think you had Flashdance in 83, Footloose in 84, Dirty Dancing in 87, and then Lombada was maybe like 89. Fame, fame. was in there somewhere, yeah. Fame, yeah. fame was like early 80s, yeah. Little little history of dance movies, maybe be a, a, a bonus episode. Uh, <laughs> I didn't realize that Peter Weir had directed this movie until I saw it watching it, and I was like, I knew that name sounded familiar, so I was like, well, I want to talk a little bit about him as well. Uh, so he was an Australian film director who gained recognition for his work in various genres over the course of four decades. Some of his most notable films include Gallipoli. Is that how you say it? From 1981 with Mel Gibson. Sure. Yeah. Mel Gibson's first big movie. Yeah. Yep. And then Witness in 85 with Harrison Ford, which I just rewatched not too long ago, which is probably why I recognize the name. Uh, Fearless with Jeff Bridges in 93. The Truman Show in 98 yep. with Jim Carrey. Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World in 2003 with Russell Crowe. Underrated movie. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that was a really good movie. I remember watching that one. Uh, but he's been nominated for six Academy Awards, and in 2022, he was awarded the Academy Honorary Award for his lifetime achievement in his career. One of the good ones, we would say, of the directors. Agreed. Looking at that filmography, he doesn't really have a type of movie, I would say. They're not, they're all kind of unique. I mean, I guess they're more on the drama side. But they're not, uh, I wouldn't say I, I would be able to pick out a Peter Weir movie just by a group of titles. Like he doesn't have that kind of signature directing style no. like a Spielberg or a Donner that we've discussed. No, I mean, no. I've, I've seen a lot of those movies, but I don't think I recognize that he was the director until you put them all right <laughs> next to each other. Right, exactly, exactly. I honestly didn't know he was the director of Green Card. Like I, I knew. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I knew Truman Show. I knew Master and Commander. Mm -hmm. I didn't know Witness, but hey, just to throw this out there, I've never seen Witness. Oh, so, oh my uh, goodness. It's a, good, yeah. it's a good one. Yeah, that's that was the movie for me. 
and I think I have I think I'm planning on doing that one uh, early next year. That was the that was the first Harrison Ford movie that I saw where he wasn't Han Solo or <laughs> Indiana uh, Jones. Indiana Jones. So it was a very different role for him, uh, and a very different kind of movie. Uh, but yeah, and but, I honestly, you made me just think. What was the first Harrison Ford movie I saw in which he wasn't on <laughs> Solar? And I honestly, was it Air Force One? <laughs> like I honestly <laughs> think it was Air Force One. I want to say The Fugitive, but that I can't have waited that long to see something with Harrison Ford other yeah. than yeah, because I didn't see Blade Runner until yeah, I was much older. Yeah, same. I saw Mosquito Coast, which is very weird. I don't even uh, know what that is. Yeah. Uh, it was based on a book. Uh, he did another movie called Frantic in the 80s that I remember going to see. I know of it, but never thriller. seen it. Yep. Uh, what else did he do in the 80s? What I'm uh, looking at now. Yeah. I, I Blade had, Runner. Okay. Witness, Mosquito Coast, Frantic, Working Girl. Yeah, I didn't presumed, see that until I was older. Now we're presumed in innocent. Yeah. That's 90. Innocent. Okay. Regarding Henry, Patriot Games, I didn't see till later. There yeah. we go. Patriot Games. That was the first one. Regarding Henry or Patriot Games, because I know my, my, I feel like I remember mom renting that one. Yeah. But Patriot Games, my dad took me to go see in the theater. So, yeah. Yeah. Because then you've got The Fugitive, Clear and Present Danger, Sabrina, Mm -hmm. The Devil's Own, and then Air Force One. I honestly do think it was Air Force One. Wow. You didn't see The Fugitive? I I did, but I don't think I did until later. Gotcha. Gotcha. I mean, I was 12 when it came out, but. Yeah. I don't think it was a movie that interests me. Yeah, I was going to say, that's not that's not a movie that a 12-year-old would probably be like, ooh, I want to go see The Fugitive. So, yeah. But yeah, still a great movie. I rewatched that one last year, too. So, All right, let's get back to Deadpool. <laughs> <laughs> Our little Harrison no, Ford rabbit trail. Harrison, Harrison Ford podcast. There you go. Hey, Harrison Ford could have been a, a potential uh, lead for uh, Keating. I could see that as well. Yeah, he yeah. could have. I mean, he was going to be the principal in E.T., that's right. That's uh, there it. we go. There you yeah. go. Absolutely right. Yeah, I gotta I gotta fit ET in here sooner or later too in the podcast. All right. The the filming of the movie started in November of eighty eight, ended in January of eighty nine. It was shot at various locations such as St. Andrew's School, Everett Theater, and Wilmington in Delaware. A replica classroom was built on a soundstage in Wilmington to film the scenes with Keating. This was cool. The young cast was asked by Peter Weir not to use any modern slang, even off camera. Additionally, Weir concealed half of a day's filming from Disney executives to allow Williams to use his comedy and improvisational skills freely, which we kind of talked about. I'm sure there was tons of extra footage of him, you know, making this an R-rated movie. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Which I'm sorry, much like Aladdin, much like Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, we've heard those stories. Uh, during uh, this is another fun fact before we get into casting, but during filming, Williams was was known to crack many jokes on set, which Ethan Hawke found incredibly irritating. For the scene where Todd Anderson is spontaneously incited by Mr. Keating to make a poem in front of the class, Williams apparently made a joke saying that Hawk was intimidating, which Hawk later realized was serious and that the joke referred to his earnestness and intensity as a young man. Ironically, Hawk's first agent signed with Hawk once Williams told him that Hawk would do really well as an actor. So, yeah, it's Robin Williams to thank for his uh, career after that. Ethan Hawke's, but I, he's a weird actor. He is. He was weird in this. <laughs> it's the, the beginning of what was to come. So, but yeah, and we'll talk a little bit. There's uh, some other stuff about the uh, the way that Peter Weir filmed. Well, I guess I'm going to say it now. We'll we'll probably talk a little bit more in depth. But uh, but he chose to film this in chronological order as well. 
like he wanted to, he wanted to show them building their trust with Mr. Keating and their bond growing as the movie progressed. Yeah. So, uh, which I think worked out pretty well. And it does kind of have the feel of like a almost like a staged play. Yes. Yeah. Like it it does kind of feel like you are watching mm-hmm. it from beginning to end. So yeah. it probably helps with that flow. Yeah. Which I did see. I don't think I put this in the notes, but I did read that one of the schools in that area requested to do it as a as a play and got permission from the from the studio to do it and peter weir came to one of the performances and saw it and then did a q a afterwards which i thought was pretty pretty interesting um, this could ve- it could very easily be turned into oh a, yeah yeah the stage play yeah so yeah. Look, very, all right very tim let's get on that okay yeah work on that for yeah. the henry players yeah yeah <laughs> and now these messages <sighs> what seems to be the problem, pal? There's just so much pain in the world, so many issues. I don't think I can bear it. Well, friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette. Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture themed podcast or something? That's right, sonny boy. When hope seems far, dive into some PCR. But I already get my entertainment news from Variety. Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, condensed, unfiltered, and raw, from three nerds who know a little something about something. Wow, okay, sign me up. That's the spirit. Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories. Comic books have been around for almost a century, and in the last two decades, we've finally gotten to see many of these characters brought to life in movies and on TV. On the Moving Panels podcast, we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and my guests as we discuss both the good and the bad from Marvel, DC, and even some of the lesser-known comic book companies. Learn what is and isn't from the comics, as well as our nerdy review of the movie or show. New episodes drop every Monday, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. All right, well, you ready to jump into casting? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, let's let's do it. Okay. Uh, I know it's such a serious movie. I'm like, I'm, we're usually having so many laughs when we do these shows. We're kind of like all somber. Uh, wow. it's okay. We'll, 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 we'll try to find Remember, we're not laughing at you. We're laughing near you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> By the way, I'm just going to go ahead and say, I have stolen that line and I use it all the time. Yes, yes. For those that don't know, uh, Laramie is a school teacher, even though he teaches math and not English. Uh, so if 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 it was his choice, we'd be doing Stand and Deliver right now instead of Dead Poets Society, <laughs> which I wanted to say I was watching it on Tubi. And as soon as this one went off, you know what the it next movie popped up? Suggested that you watch Stand and Deliver. Like, Stand and Deliver will start in seven seconds. And I was like, man, if I had time, I'd watch it, too. But yeah. Um, so since you brought that up, I want to go ahead and bring up this point. Sure. So movies like Stand and Deliver, movies mm-hmm. like uh, a lot of these movies, you know, School of Rock, Dangerous Minds, all of these school movies. And I can't mm-hmm. help but think it as I'm watching this movie. Is this the only class they teach? <laughs> Good point. That, that's just yeah. it. Like, mm-hmm. it, does he only teach one class? Right, right. The school can't be very big, considering at the beginning they talk about last year we graduated 51 students. Mm-hmm. And there's 20 of them in this one class. <laughs> right, right. So... He he only, but there has to be another class somewhere. Like this kid, yeah. he can't 
this can't be the only class he teaches. Right. And you have all the different like grade levels. Like there's smaller kids up to like yeah. seniors. So you have to think that he probably taught like an elementary grade or a middle school grade class as well, maybe. Sure. Yeah. We I mean we start the movie off watching a couple of young kids getting all ready for the orientation or mm-hmm. or the the seance that they were having holding the candles. <laughs> I still understand what was going on there. Yeah, the beginning is a little weird because it's like it's they're putting on military badges and then it's like a Catholic mass service, but it's not a Catholic school. So I was, yeah, it was it was a little interesting. Yeah, I, I speak as the non-teacher. Um, you know, I'm just a mechanic. <laughs> it never would have dawned on me to think about that. Now right. that you say it. I have to reframe every movie I've ever yeah. seen that involves a teacher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. It makes sense. It makes sense. I mean, the last time you had me on with the school, it was summer school. Right. So it made sense. That was the only group yeah, yeah, you yeah. did. Yeah. But now that I'm doing one that's about an actual school year, mm-hmm. again, watching it, I'm just going, I this is the first time I get to bring this up. I've <laughs> always thought this watching these type of movies. Well, like, you know, they have to have other classes. Right. And then I want there's one part where like they're always going outside and like doing sports. I'm like, was he teaching a sports class as well or he just made so, that part of his class? So there's the one where they're reading the lines and then kicking the ball. Yeah, I yeah. think that was part of the class. But then there's the other scene where it's they're, they're like, it's like a playing soccer. Yeah. I think he's the soccer coach, too. Okay. Yeah. Because when they pull out his yearbook, they do mention that he was the captain of the soccer team. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So okay. I I do also think he was the soccer coach. Okay, that makes more sense now. Yeah, but he had all the same guys while he was playing teaching soccer as he had. There are only class. 50 graduates. So, <laughs> I mean, you, you need, you know, if you're going to play two teams in soccer, Right, you're gonna need half the senior class. So. There you go. There you go. Oh my goodness! All right, well, let's jump into casting. I'm sure we'll we'll have more fun Easter eggs like that as yeah. we go. So let's talk about this cast that half of them never went on to do anything else. Yeah, it's you know you got a few that did, and then others are like there's very little to talk about. So we'll cover what we can cover. But we'll first, we'll of course start with Mr. Robin Williams as John Keating. Uh, this is a little lengthy, but I think it's he's worthy of this lengthy. Uh, bio known for his improvisational skills and the wide variety of characters he created on the spur of the moment and portrayed on film and dramas and in comedies alike. He is regarded as one of the greatest comedians of all time. He received numerous accolades, including an Academy award, two primetime Emmy awards, six golden globe awards, two screen actors guild awards and five Grammy awards. Can we point out his Academy award was also for playing a teacher? Yeah. Yeah. Goodwill hunting. Yep. Finally got one. The man is good at playing a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Williams began performing stand-up comedy in San Francisco and Los Angeles during the mid-70s and released several comedy albums. He rose to fame quickly playing the alien Mork in the ABC sitcom Mork and Mindy, which, no, was, no, a no, spin- no. which was a spinoff of? Happy Days. Happy Days. Happy Days. Good, good job, guys. You hey, got the I, notes. Living here in Milwaukee, if I'm not aware of Happy Days, I would, <laughs> I would be kicked out. Right. <laughs> right. That and Laverne and Shirley, right? You have yeah. to know those two. Uh, I we have a bronze fawn statue in downtown. I believe hey. it. It's hey. very short. It's very short. Apparently, much like Henry Winkler himself. But 
but there is a bronze fawns in right on on the river and near the one of the theaters down there gotcha so he received his first leading role in popeye in 1980 which we mentioned earlier uh his other critically acclaimed dramas were the world according to garp in 82 moscow on the hudson 84 awakenings in 1990 patch adams in 98 insomnia in 2002 one hour photo also in 2002 another weird one yeah yeah uh he also starred in family films such as hook in 91 mrs doubtfire 93 jumanji in 95 jack in 96 rv in 2006 of course the night at the museum trilogy where then he lent his voice to the animated films aladdin in 92 robots in 2005 as well as the happy feet films he went on, as we mentioned, he went on to win the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for Goodwill Hunting in 1997. He was also nominated for his roles in Good Morning Vietnam, Dead Poet Society, and The Fisher King, which was in 1991, which is probably, that's also one of my favorite Robin Williams, very underrated Robin Williams movie, The Fisher King, if you haven't seen it. Ah, Terry Gilliam. Yep, exactly. By the way, you you did not mention Fern Gully. I did not mention Fern Gully. I'm so sorry. No, the original good. Avatar. Come on. There you go. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, Avatar. Or, or yeah. the classic Death to Smoochie. Yeah, I haven't seen that well, one. Nah. <laughs> Using the word I mean, classic very yeah. loosely. <laughs> like, it's like Man of the Year. I remember going seeing that one in yeah. theaters. And then being so disappointed. Yes, we rented that one and I was like, what am I watching? Let me say yeah. again, I went and saw it in theaters. <laughs> I didn't even know it went to theaters. I didn't even yep. know it was in theaters until I, you know, nope. I saw it on video. I saw it in theaters. So disappointed. I'm pretty <laughs> sure I rented Man of the Year as well. I seem to remember doing that. Yeah. But sadly, Robin Williams was found dead at his home in Paradise City, California, in August of 2014. At the age of 63, at the time of his suicide, he had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. According to his widow, Williams had experienced depression, anxiety, and increasing paranoia. His autopsy found, quote-unquote, diffuse Lewy body disease, and the Lewy body dementia professional said his symptoms were actually consistent with that diagnosis, So, uh, which is why it's kind of hard for me to watch a Robin Williams movie now. Like I remember after he passed, I think Mrs. Yeah. Doubtfire came on. like They were showing it on all the cable channels, and it took us a while. I was like, I'm just not ready to watch it yet. It's just, it was hard, hard to watch. You mentioned the Night at Museum trilogy, yes. but the third one... He, he didn't entirely finish or I can't remember. it came out around that same time. I think where it came yeah. out right after that it, yeah. it came out like right after he, I think he had filmed a good majority of it. Mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, I know he did a lot of it. I, they might've had to do some CGI stuff, but for the most part he was, I mean, cause I, I know they talked about pushing that one back because of, you know, and then mm-hmm. they ultimately decided not to, but, yeah, and he had been on a show on CBS that oh, we were the watching. Crazy ones? The crazy ones, I yeah. Love which, the great with Sarah show. Michelle yeah. Geller. Yep, yeah. That was love a great the show. Crazy ones. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, moving on. Yeah, uh, it's what so it, sad. So what attracted Robin Williams to the role of John Keating more than anything else was that he was the type of teacher he in his school days always wished he had. So I guess that's why he did play, you know, great teachers, because that was the I you know, he he wanted to have teachers like that when he was growing up. I mean, I, I wrote somewhere in my notes here that I, I probably would have run through a wall for a teacher like that. Oh, yeah. Like, if I had had a teacher like that at all. But, you know, I'm not to say that I had bad te- – I did have some bad teachers. But yeah. I had some pretty good ones as well. But I don't think I had any 
that were quite on this level that would have inspired me to the level that they he inspired some of these kids. Okay. Let's say, do you, do you, I was going to, that was going to be the next question to have you had a teacher that you would say, maybe not to that level, but you say did inspire you or change the course of your life in some way? I'd have to really think about, you know, you, I, I should have been prepared for that question. Um, <laughs> I mean, I had a, I had a, well, in high school, I mean, most teachers I only had for a semester, except for, for my German teacher, I had all four years. So, I mean, she must have been doing something right to keep me in German for four straight years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I know you and I had a couple teachers in college mm -hmm. that, that, you know, like at the time, I know I'm, I'm, you know, why I'm blanking on his name right now. And I know you know which one I'm talking about. Mr. Warren. I, we, we, Mr. Warren. At the time, the, the first class you take with him, you absolutely hated him. Yep. But one, once you figured out what his deal was, mm -hmm. and once you figured out how to work him, he was one of the better teachers we had the yeah. entire time we were there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Mr. Warren was definitely that. But I think I didn't realize who he really was until I did a camp with him in the summer, not at school, where you realized he knew how to have fun and was really a funny guy. But he didn't let you know that in class. Like he was so straight laced. But what about you, Larry? Did you have a teacher that inspired you to be a teacher? With that specific question, there were two. There was mm -hmm. my eighth grade math teacher, Miss Beasley. And it was mainly because she was really good at showing kind of the best word to say it is like the tricks behind math <laughs> um, and just kind of showing that math is really just basic puzzles. And then it was my uh, 10th grade world history teacher, Mr. Pittard. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, when I graduated and was named a top 10 student, we got to pick a teacher. Okay. One of the top 10. And I picked him. Uh, and then he, his last year at my high school was actually my senior year. And I, I was helping him pack up his room. And he had this stone, like authentic stone Buddha. Hmm. And... And he was, he didn't want to take it with him because it was cracked around the neck and he was mm -hmm. afraid it was just going to continue to break in the, the move. Cause he was moving to, he, he went to work at Wake Forest. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. And he was afraid it was going to uh, break. So he asked me if I wanted it. Sure. And I have had that thing in my classroom <laughs> to this day. Uh, so even though I'm a math teacher, I have this stone, uh, <laughs> gray Buddha. stone Buddha in my classroom, but he was one kind of like what y'all are talking about. You know, a lot of a lot of students didn't like him, but once you kind of, you know, figured him out, mm -hmm. uh, he was really fun. Mm -hmm. And I, I lucked out to get him both semesters of yeah. world history because uh, we did switch sometimes during the semester. Even, even if it was the same class, we would switch teachers. But mm -hmm. I lucked out to have him both times. And part of me wishes I had done AP because he was also the AP European history teacher. But Yeah. Uh, but I didn't do AP. I, I wasn't that that yeah. level. <laughs> no, uh, I wasn't even either. though. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, no. The the two of them. I mean, I've had a lot of teachers that I think inspired me along the way. Um, and you know, I I you know don't want to toot my own horn or whatnot. But teachers, honestly, I'm I would be in the same ballpark as Robin Williams. I try to be the teacher mm -hmm. that I wanted to have. Yeah, when yeah. I was in school. Yeah, that's cool. For me, it was, uh, I had, I've had a few, the one that always stands up, people say, who was your favorite teacher? I had Dr. Sullivan in high school. She was an English teacher, but I, you mentioned the AP. She was the AP English teacher as well, or AP literature. 
Um, but she was one of the only like AP teachers that didn't treat her non-AP students like we were less than. Like she, oh, you know, I had one of those. Yeah, like she <laughs> would, you know, she just treated everybody the same. And what was cool, I remember realizing that we found this out like halfway through the school year because she was just so relaxed and never seemed stressed about anything. And she was like, she's like, I don't, I don't have to work this job. She's like, my husband makes plenty of money. She drove like a Mercedes. She drove a really nice car. She's like, I do this because I love it. I love to teach English. She's like, so I don't get stressed out about stuff. I just, I just love what I do. And so her love of English and love of being with us made it easy. It seemed to me to be easier in, in class because it was, it didn't feel like it was, she was just there just to teach. She was there to kind of, you know, uh, you know, live life with us, but we had a lot of cool, a lot of cool stories from her class. So, all right. Well, moving along with the cast next in line, the interesting Ethan Hawke as Todd Anderson. He made his film debut in Explorers in 85 before making his breakthrough performance in Dead Poet Society. I forgot that he's an Explorer. Yeah. Him and Chris is a Christian Bale. And who's the other kid? Oh my God. I, I have forgotten so much about Explorers. Yeah. <laughs> that's one I think I've only seen once. You know. I feel like that's a movie that I watched a bunch in the eighties. And then mm -hmm. when, when it hit 90, I just stopped watching it and haven't <laughs> thought about it since. I honestly, yeah. River, River Phoenix is the only actor I know is from the Explorers. Oh, maybe I'm thinking River Phoenix, not Christian yeah. Bale. Yeah. Yeah. That was a movie. Like even people talk about it now, it's like the beginning of it is so good. And then once they actually get into space, it gets really weird. And so that's, I think that's why I never really went back to watching it because it was a very uneven movie, but, but yeah, that was his film debut. Uh, he received two nominations for the Academy Award for best supporting actor for training day in 2001 and boyhood in 2014 and two for best adapted screenplay for co-writing before sunset in 2004 and before midnight in 2013. Other no. Go ahead. I went on record earlier talking about an underrated movie. Yes. I want to go on record right now and saying Training Day is overrated. Oh. I will co-sign that. I have to I haven't seen it in a long time. So it's hard for me to I, I'm I'm not I don't know which side of the fence I'm am on that one. I liked it when it came out, but it's, it's one that I another movie, it's like it's not something I really just want to sit down and watch. But yeah, everybody liked Crash when it first came out too. Yeah, that doesn't yeah. make it a good movie. <laughs> yeah. I did like Crash a lot when it came out. It's not as good. Do you like it now? <laughs> not no, not really. Uh, not as much as I did when I first saw it. Uh, other notable roles include Reality Bites in '94, Gattaca in '97, Great Expectations in '98, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead in 2007, The Black Phone in 2021 our most recent movies he's been a part of, but you're not going to mention the purge, the purge. Yeah. I, you know, I can't list them all. I can't list something them all. I can. Yeah. That's something though. I can actually tolerate him in. I've never seen the purge movies. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. They're not worth it. Um, he, he was the worst. Look, so yeah, I'm the comic book guy. Yeah. He was the worst part of moon Knight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's the villain in moon Knight, and mm -hmm. he, he was unbearable to watch. Yeah. I hate to talk so poorly of somebody, but I very rarely like him in a movie. He's he is all over the place. You never know what you're gonna get out of Ethan Hawke. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You you you're either gonna get a super solid Oscar worthy performance, or you're gonna get whatever you got. <laughs> yeah, out, I of, will... uh, out of Moon Knight. Yeah, I I've yeah. got. I've got problem. I don't necessarily dislike him in Moon Knight as much as Laramie did, but 
I've got problems with Moon Knight as a whole. Yeah, I was going to say, Moon Knight just didn't didn't deliver. Mainly because I love the character of Moon Knight, and I just wanted that show to be so much better. But that's not what this podcast is about. No. Anyway. <laughs> but I And I, I'll give him props. I did like – I I'm actually a, a fan of the Daybreakers movie. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. That, like, was, that was a good movie. So I'll give him that one. I liked Gattaca. I haven't watched that in a long time, but that, that I did not. Good. Yeah. Okay. I did not. Sorry. Yeah. I liked him in the um, uh, Magnificent Seven remake they did a couple of years ago. He was never saw that one, so I yeah, can't. that was enjoyable. Can't speak yeah. on that one. Yeah. All right. Well, moving on to one of the other people we actually know about, Josh Charles as Knox Overstreet. His film debut was in fellow Baltimore native John Waters' Hairspray in 1988. The following year, he starred with Robin Williams in Dead Poet Society. We were talking about that. Other film roles include Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, which I totally yeah. didn't realize he was in that. Threesome, Pie in the Sky. He was in Muppets from Space. Uh, he was in the SWAT movie, Four Brothers, uh, Crossing the Bridge, or some of the other movies he's been a part of. On television, uh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to, you were about to say television. I was about to say, yeah, yeah. he very famously was on The Good Wife. Yes. I yeah. wasn't. I wasn't a fan. I didn't watch the show, but I oh, do know yeah. he was on that. Yeah, we did. We were big fans of, of that one. So, uh, But yeah, on TV, he played sports anchor Dan Rydell and Aaron Sorkin's Emmy Award-winning Sports Night. Oh, I forgot about Sports Night. Yeah. And then, that was a good one. Yeah, he actually earned a Screen Actors Guild nomination uh, for that. He was also in the uh, HBO show In Treatment. And then, of course, as like you mentioned, he was on The Good Wife. For the work on that series, he was nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Drama Series in 2011 and 2014. Four Brothers, it's kind of a guilty pleasure movie for me. I like that a lot. Fun movie. He plays I don't think the, I've seen it since it came out. Yeah, yeah. I, like I remember it. liking it, but I don't think yeah. I've seen it since it came out. Josh yeah. Charles is one of those guys that, like, I see his face, I know who he is. I know I've seen a lot of his stuff, but, like, mm -hmm. I don't. Like, I couldn't sit here and... I mean, I could now because you just listed off a whole bunch of stuff, but mm -hmm. like I, I'd have to really struggle to come up with anything he had been in. But I know him. Like when I yeah. see his face, I'm like, oh, that's Josh Charles. Mm -hmm. He's not, he, I, I would probably elevate him over over a, that guy because like, yeah, I yeah, think yeah, most people know who he is. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, you know, he's just consistent. He's always, yeah. you know, he's always good in whatever he's doing. Which might not, what he's doing might not be any good, but at least <laughs> but he's, he's good. He's in good it. in it. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say that kind of the same way with uh, Sean Leonard Scott, like he's, or I'm sorry, Robert Sean Leonard. Robert right? Sean Leonard. Oh, was three, three name people always <laughs> give me problems. Uh, Robert Sean Leonard, like if he had not been on house as long as he was yeah. on house, um, did I skip over him? I did. Oh, my you have. Goodness. We haven't talked about him yet. Oh, okay. Well, let's talk about him now. Robert Sean Leonard as Neil Perry. Uh, he was actually born Robert Lawrence Leonard but he took on the middle name of Sean because there was someone else named Robert Leonard in the Screen Actors Guild. His acting career began with small roles in films such as My Two Loves in 86 and The Manhattan Project in 86, which I just rewatched recently with John Lithgow. He went on to act in several successful films after Dead Poets Society, including Mr. and Mrs. Bridge in, 90, in 1990 with Paul Newman, and he was in Much Ado About Nothing in 1993, directed by Kenneth yep. Branagh. He also, you? Yeah. He also took the lead role in Swing Kids in 1993 alongside Christian Bale, Frank Whaley, and Barbara Hershey. And he was also on the TV show House, which was probably why, you know, like I said, as I was going to say, if he had not been on the show House, then I 
watched for almost the entire run of its you know season he would have been kind of one of those forgotten actors because pretty much after swing kids which i'm not saying was a great movie but i remember watching it but he I've really hadn't it, yeah yeah but i hadn't he hadn't really done much after that but him and josh charles kind of the same boat like i wouldn't consider them that guys i may not be able to pull their name quickly but i will know what i've seen them in and know that they're actually pretty good in what i've seen them in but yeah I was a big fan of Bunch of Dude about nothing, that film adaptation. I yeah, watched it I mean, time. with the with the exception of Keanu Reeves, that movie's great. Yeah, I always forget he's in that. As you should. <laughs> All right, so those are probably the names that everybody's going to kind of remember. Now we're getting into some of those, uh, either that guy's or I had no idea he was in that. Uh, the first one I'm mentioning is Gail Hansen as Charlie Dalton. There is no information about him anywhere. Man. <laughs> and and I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you, I wish he did more stuff. Yeah, he was great. He is great in this movie. Yeah, yeah. And I was actually surprised when, like, when he when he when the movie started, I was like, man, I think well, why have I not seen why have I not seen this guy in other things outside of this movie because he's so good in it. But uh, but yeah, he he ended up getting into like behind the scenes stuff. Like he's yeah, he became like a producer, didn't yeah, he? producer and investor. So, but uh, I do have this trivia note in regards to him. So he was already 28 years old when he was in the running for the, for the role of Charlie Dalton, even though the director's wife was impressed with the audition tape, when it was found out that he had lied about his age, he was forced to go through the casting process again, which I think he pulled off. I will yeah. say, yeah, I will say for the class, they don't all um, seem to be the same age. I forget that this is high school. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like they look like they're in college. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Much like most of the movies from the 80s and 90s filming <laughs> high school, yeah. next to none of them were actually high schoolers. Yeah. No. Yeah. But but it's uh, there are some 20 year olds you can cast that look young. Uh, right. But, right. But no, this cast looked like they were in their 20s. Yeah. yeah. And even acted like they're, I mean, they acted, except yeah, they for def- Ethan Hawke's yes. little whiny, <laughs> whiny character. Yeah. But that was what I was saying. Like, it feels like it, let's say, let's keep it in the high school context. It seemed like a 10th, 11th, and 12th grade kind of like it seemed like those two yeah. grades together. It didn't yeah. seem like they were all seniors. No, I, there were especially moments between Neil and Todd. Like mm-hmm. I really thought Neil was older yeah. than Todd. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And even when they introduced uh, Todd, like, well, here's our youngest. So I'm thinking, well, I'm thinking he's coming in as a freshman, you know, maybe he's ninth grade, but he's in the same classes with, all the older guys too. So yeah, that didn't make Which sense. Which doesn't make sense because doesn't it seem like he's starting school for the first time? <laughs> like ever? <laughs> well, but at this school, like yeah, this is he his was, first yeah. year at this yeah. school. Which doesn't make sense considering his brother right, right there. Right. Right. So why hadn't he already been going there? Why is he only taking his senior year there? My, yeah, yeah. Again not thought about it until i was watching it the second time i it was it was bizarre like it was like wait the timeline of this makes no sense like mm-hmm. no and then you've got neil who's an established student there but mm-hmm. yet they but yet they also established that his parents aren't as well off yeah, as that, the others yeah. and that's what i was gonna say the only reason i would think that todd is coming in later is because they had paid for his brother. And then once his brother graduated, it's like, Oh, now we can afford for you to go to the school now. And that's kind of what, that was the only, oh, that, just seems, that just <laughs> seems horrible. Oh yeah. We're going to wait. We're going to wait till your brother gets his fine education. 
and just start a couple of years late. Hmm. Couple years, three years. He's starting his <laughs> senior year. Right, right. Oh, I can think of nothing worse than switching. When I was in high school, um, halfway through my senior year, my my dad got transferred from Atlanta to DC. And and there was discussion as to whether or not I would have to go finish high school in Virginia rather mm-hmm. than stay in Atlanta. And it was finally determined that I could uh, that I could stay for the one semester I had left of high school mm. rather than go start over in another school where I that might have horrible. to like take extra time or whatnot. But yeah. yeah. Thank thankfully there was a family in my church that was willing to put me up and let me, you know, mm-hmm. in this you know, the school system didn't ask questions. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But I yeah, just going to regular public school for three years and then going to this just overbearing, just terrible, terrible place for your senior year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That would have been yeah. that would have been awful. Yeah. Which once again makes it seem like it makes more sense for him to have been a freshman, not a senior with everybody else. But yeah, it doesn't make sense. Okay. Moving on. We got a few more cast people. All right, so then we got Dylan Koosman as Richard Cameron. Dylan got his big break in Dead Poets Society. He's since appeared in numerous feature films, including Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken, Jack Reacher, Flight, X2, and The Way of the Gun, and has worked alongside such cinematic luminaries as Cliff Robertson, James Caan, Kathy Bates, Alfred Woodard, Patrick Stewart. He also include also include appearances on Monk, House, Without a Trace, Cold Case, The X-Files, and Drop Dead Diva. Uh, the interesting fact is he also co-wrote the screenplay for the 2017 Tom Cruise film The Mummy, which bombed terribly. Oh. I don't know if I'd take credit for that one. <laughs> right. But that's why I had to put it in there. It's like, yeah, that's his That's his one. That's his few screenwriting credits. Didn't turn out so well. Oh, okay. So oh. I heard you say X2, so I'm literally sitting here going, who is he <laughs> in X2? X2? Yeah. Random soldier like that. He's yeah, yeah, Striker's yeah. soldier Wilkins. So <laughs> that was. I don't think okay. he had any like major major roles. Then you've got Alelon Rogerio. I'm messing that Bless up. As, as Stephen Meeks, he finished out his acting training at the Performing Arts School of Philadelphia after Dead Poet Society wrapped and went on to study film at University of the Arts. He was while he was attending a university, appeared in various movies including New Jack City, Green Card, Two Bits. Eyes Beyond Seeing, 12 Monkeys, and Thinner. In 1992, he played the episode lead Carl Borland in NBC's Law and & Order Intolerance. After finishing Law & Order, he chose to focus on writing, directing, and acting in a short film entitled Lost. In the winter of 1998, he appeared as Jimmy, the possessed executioner in the supernatural thriller Fallen, starring Denzel Washington. That's a good movie. Yeah. I haven't seen that one in a while either. Moving right along, James Waterston as Gerald Pitts. Of course, this was his first film. While much of his screen work has been in television productions, he did appear in the 2015 film, and it was good working with his father, Sam, and sister, Catherine. He's also appeared in different roles across the Law & Order television franchise over the years, and he had numerous other appearances on episodes of TV dramas such as Diagnosis Murder, The Good Wife, The Blacklist, (laughs) as well as others. I think that rounds out all the guys of the group. Yeah, which again, you're looking at four who never who didn't really. Yeah, this wasn't a, a big launching point. point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I still uh, Charlie, mm-hmm. whatever his actual actor's name is, man, he is good. Yeah, 
And I wish he had done more. I'm just going to say agree. that again. Gail Hansen. Okay. What's his name? All right. So then we'll move on to Norman Lloyd as Dr. Gail Nolan, the headmaster. In the 80s, he played Dr. Daniel Oshlander in the TV series St. Elsewhere over its six-season yep. run. He was originally only scheduled for four episodes, but he came a regular on the series. His first film role in nearly, de nearly a decade was in Dead Poet Society. Initially, he was hesitant when asked to audition because he thought the director and producers could judge whether or not he was right for the part by watching his acting on St. Elsewhere. But director Peter Weir was living, in, was living in Australia and had not seen any episodes of St. Elsewhere. So Lloyd agreed to audition for him after winning a daily tennis match, which I don't know why that's such an important part of the story. But I saw it <laughs> several times that he, had, he, he agreed after winning his tennis match. Uh, from 1998 to 2001, he played Dr. Isaac Mentor, I'm sorry, Mentnor in the UPN science fiction drama Seven Days. His numerous television guest star appearances include Murder, She Wrote, The Twilight Zone, Wise Guy, Star Trek, The Next Generation, Wings, The Practice, and Civil Wars. I did see that he lived to be 100 in his last acting role. He was actually 99 years old when he was in it. Awesome. Yeah. Wasn't his... Because... Uh, this is a guy I actually like I I recognize in so many things because he's got to me he's got a very distinct look. Yes, yes. For uh, sure. It wasn't his last thing that train wreck movie. Yes, it was. Yeah, because I remember watching that when he popped up. I was like, <laughs> that dude's still alive. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I re I was reading I was reading notes about it. He said that uh, he agreed to the film, but then once he was actually filming it, he was he didn't appreciate the crude humor of the movie, but that Very was, his, that was his last movie. Uh, you signed to do a movie with Amy Schumer. What did you think was going to happen? But anyway, best, uh, best part of that movie is John Cena. Hands down. <laughs> it's Amy Schumer. I refuse to watch it. Look, you need to see the John Cena scene though. <laughs> the guy, right, the, guy the guy says he, guy says he looks like Mark Wahlberg and he goes, I look like Mark Wahlberg ate Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, back to 80s movies. The only other person in this movie that you would recognize from anything else, the incomparable Kurtwood Smith as Thomas Perry, yeah. controlling father. Of course, he's most well-known as Clarence Boddicker in RoboCop. As well what? As the no, he is most known as Red Foreman. I was yeah, just saying, and I said, and I was, you didn't Look. let me finish my sentence, and the father role of Red Foreman on the Fox sitcom That 70s Show. After that 70s show ended, he played Senator Blaine Meyer in the seventh season of the action thriller 24 and portrayed Dick Clayton in CBS series Worst Week. Uh, he's done several other TV shows as well. Other notable roles include the leader of the Ku Klux Klan in A Time to Kill. He also played the role of Mr. Sue on Fox's espionage comedy The New Adventures of Beans Baxter in 1987. Uh, let's see. He's been in several Star Trek movies as well. I will know him best as Boniker from. Uh, like, I'm not. Um, I'm not saying that's a key role for him, but that man solidified himself <laughs> as Red Foreman. Yeah, well, I that I don't think Kurt Woodsmith. When I see him, I think, oh, that's Red. That's Red. Oh, that's yeah. right. That's that, that's Kurt Woodsmith. <laughs> Even going back and watching RoboCop, I was like, hey, that's Red. Oh wait, no, that's that's Kurt. <laughs> no. <Woodsmith. laughs> soon as soon as he popped up in this movie, I'm just and I'm I'm. I'm, you know, I obviously we're not going to curse, but I just, right. I'm just waiting for him to say Jack. <laughs> just waiting. Right. 
This don't is catchphrase. Don't make me put your foot up your uh, my foot up yeah. your ass. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I've ever watched a full episode of that '70s show. I, and, the, I don't. and the podcast goes silent. I don't well, even know. I don't even know what to I, say. Yeah, about I don't. That. Know, I don't know how to react to that. I'm not saying I was a huge that '70s show fan, but right. I, I have seen episodes. Yeah. Pretty sure they hand out the uh, seasons of that on on DVD when you cross the border. <laughs> when, when you get you get your driver's license and a couple seasons of Happy Days and that '70s show. Gotcha. <laughs> I'm gonna. I know it's on several streaming places. I'll go back and watch it. It's one that I, I keep saying I'm gonna go back and watch. I've seen bits and pieces, and I just was never a big Ashton Kutcher fan, so that's why I never really wanted to watch it. I've seen bits and pieces, so I'll go back to it. Anyway, moving on. We only got a few. We're, we're down. To, we're down to the end here. So I wanted to mention Alexandra Powers as Chris Knoll, Knox's love interest. Uh, she appeared in various television and film roles, including Cast a Deadly Spell, Twenty One Jump Street. And of course, Dead Poet Society. She also had a recurring recurring role on the NBC legal drama LA Law. As I have revealed on this podcast before, huge Bruce Willis fan. She yes. has a love interest in Last Man Standing. Oh, yep. She did several things, but she wasn't as I, she looked familiar to me in the movie, and I thought she had been in a bunch of other stuff, but she hadn't done as much as I thought she had. Um uh, this was a fun fact. Matt Carey, the actor who portrays Hopkins and delivers the line, the cat sat on a mat, <laughs> was actually a St. Andrew student at the time. He earned more than his teacher's salary that year for his small role uh, in the film. And what about the fact that his character actually has a story arc, has a character arc? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Barely has any lines. And mm -hmm. his character has a character arc. Mm -hmm. When he stands up at the end, like that's... Right. That's one of the best moments because it looks like he doesn't care throughout the yeah. entire movie. Exactly. Exactly. And then he stands up at the end and he crosses his arms, mm -hmm. even gives like Keating a little, <laughs> little like, yeah, that's right. You actually did inspire me. Mm -hmm. Like, love it. And then lastly, we'll mention Lara Flynn Boyle had a small role as Chet's sister. <laughs> Not her, in the movie. But her character was cut. <laughs> she does appear in the movie lying down on the floor in the background while Knox oh. speaks with Chet's parents. She also appears on stage at the end of the play. According to an interview in 1991, she was told the day of the film's premiere that she had been edited out of the film and should not attend the premiere with the rest of the cast. Oh, that's horrible. That is I, terrible. But, yeah, that, uh, yeah that, 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 would, that would be pretty crushing. Yeah. Now, I was, I was looking, because I, I read the trivia, so I was looking for that one little, like, I think I saw it. Like, there's one girl who you kind of see the back of, like laying, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure if that's the right scene or not. But yeah, I, I saw her name in the credits, and I'm like, yeah. And her name is like in the like pretty high up on the credits at the end. I didn't see her anywhere in the movie. Oh, it's because all pretty all much every scene of hers were cut. And now these messages playing on a cell phone near you a show for all the manly men out there where guys talk about their favorite movies and what they can teach us about being a man featuring the coolest guests murder somebody is not like killing an ant the most gratifying laughs it's tombstone what can i say <laughs> <laughs> and a fresh take on movies like you've never heard before this will be the thing that gets written on his proverbial tombstone. We aren't here to criticize the movies you love, but to praise them for how they apply to our lives as husbands, fathers, and really all men in general. 
So buckle up your seatbelts, because Manly Movies is here. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast catcher. And remember, man up. All right, well, let's talk about uh, iconic scenes, favorite scenes. I think we all know what the iconic scene is. I about to say, I- iconic is them standing on the desk. Yeah, it's period. the end. Exactly, yeah. That's that's clearly the most iconic scene. But what about favorite scenes? I'll let Nicholas go first. Um, I, it was more of like a little like throwaway line that if you weren't paying attention, you, you didn't catch it. It was when they were playing soccer. Robin Williams looks at Meeks and goes, Time to uh, time to inherit the earth, and then he looks over at Pitts and goes, "Rise above your name, son." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love that he comments on Meeks and Pitts' names, mm-hmm. but yet you got a kid named Knox Overstreet. <laughs> <laughs> right, nineteen fifties names. So fun. Yeah. All right, what favorite scenes you have, uh, Laramie? I like the one where, as much as you know, I'm not a big fan of Ethan Hawke in this but mm-hmm. i like when todd has to deliver his poem yes yeah and mr keating you know kind of pulls it out of him pulls it out of him i that is actually one of my favorite scenes mm-hmm. yeah i agree i like the the first class too when he mm-hmm. just walks walks through them whistling and then uh calls him out there but but just even that whole that whole speech that moment i mean even because it even goes silent at one point when it's just showing the pictures, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to me, it's just it's, just, it's a, a good scene. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it was a great way to start things off. Of this is what he's going to be like as a teacher. So yeah, I like when he has him read the first the pre, prelude to the the poetry book, and he's drawing the diagram on the board, yeah. and of course, the one you know stickler to the rules is. Got his ruler out, and he's and he was like, "No, tear, yeah. tear the page out." And then, yeah, Cameron, yeah. which also the way Cameron then tears the page and uses the ruler. ruler. So that means that means about an inch of that yes. paper is still, still in that book. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I was gonna say one of the other iconic scenes for me would be the the page ripping, like you know, mm. rip, rip it out, rip it yeah. out. I don't want to ever see or hear from that again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then when the other teacher comes in, like, "What's going on in here?" He's like, "I don't hear any ripping." He's like, oh, I didn't realize yeah. you were here. He's like, I'm here. What they're doing is okay. And I know this movie's already, you know, pushing the two hour. It's a little over two hours. Yeah, it's like two hours and eight minutes. Yeah. I would have liked a little bit more development of that that other teacher. That yeah, because you becomes yeah. his friend. Right. Exactly. It's very subtle because I don't think I yeah. realized that until watching it this time. Like at the end, you know, he waves at him in the in the in the window when he knows that he's about to get kicked out of the school and. Yeah. I was like, yeah, well, and I, I, they're even they're having tea together when right. the headmaster comes to speak to Keaton. Right, right. Um, yeah, I agree. I would have liked a little bit more of that development, but I like the scene with uh, which is kind of somewhat iconic, but it's the scene I think about is when uh, Ethan Hawke finds out about Neil's suicide, which you know, spoiler yeah. alert, then yeah, not by now. <laughs> uh, you haven't seen this almost 40 year old movie, right. Uh, and you're almost an hour into the podcast. Shame on you. Um, yeah. But, you know, that scene of him going out in the snow and it's it's impact. You know, it's impactful. You know, as that was impactful for me as a kid. And I I do. One thing I was surprised, I did not realize this movie was rated PG. I would have thought for sure it was PG-13 
just based on the suicide story line somewhat. Yeah. But even how they, how that was shown is very, still impactful, but not gratuitous, which I was, I was appreciative of. The, the way they shot that is, is so genius Mm -hmm. Um, to have, to have Red Foreman walk into his, his office Mm -hmm. and, and then they show the office and we see the smoke. Yes. Yes. But he doesn't. Mm-hmm. But then you notice that he's smelling something. Yeah. Yeah. Just that. And recognizes like, what that smell is. And then when he recognizes it and he looks, he sees the gun, mm-hmm. then the hand, and then it goes to slow motion. Mm-hmm. Such a, and then the mom comes in and says, he's going to be all right. He's all right. Yeah. He's going to be yeah. all right. Yeah. Uh, it's a, yeah. such a. Uh, again, we talked about heavy. That is mm-hmm. such a heavy moment. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I did. I did make notes about how impactful it was that they shot that scene that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you pointed it out. I mean, it was just because I mean, in in the hands of a lesser filmmaker, you could have ham-handed it or or really gone over the top and, mm-hmm. and kind of you know made it gross. Where yeah, we're right. blood all way. over the wall. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. And doing it the way they did it, I think, really kind of drove the point home without you know glamorizing it or glorifying it yeah we kind of mentioned this at the beginning but what are the what are the big differences of the memories of it as a kid versus watching it as an adult what perspectives changed for you or did it i honestly say it it hasn't okay yeah no the the same thoughts i had on it uh, like I said, watching it maybe even as a middle schooler. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, obviously, there's more stuff I pick up on, right? But in terms of like, do I think the story changes from watching it as a, a you know younger person to watching it as an adult? I don't. Mm-hmm. What about you, Nicholas? I mean, I I would say that that being that I understand a lot more of it now, it it's much more impactful watching it now i also think i realized as i'm watching the movie it impacted me way more than i think i realized uh when it came to like poetry like i, I oh don't yeah think, yeah you know because like i've always kind of had a like an underlying kind of a secret passion of of writing i've i never i haven't written in a long time but like i remember in in several english classes in in high school or more in college um where you would get the teacher who would try to get you to analyze poems and mm-hmm. go to and mm-hmm. i was just like don't like stop trying yeah. to analyze. like don't <laughs> like you know going too far away and i'm now realizing like i must have picked up on that from this yeah or yeah. other things like this you know that like i didn't i let this seep in way more than i think i did yeah um yeah yeah that's interesting because I, I had very similar instance where when I was still in high school, my dad like signed me up for like a college English, like a intro, like a different English class to like get extra credits, like to get into college or whatever. And it was and because he knew that I was into like English because I loved English. I was I liked re- writing poetry as well. Like you, it was a, basically like a poetry class. But the guy that was teaching he was an older guy, but he wouldn't give us poetry. He would always give us Simon and Garfunkel lyrics, song lyrics. And he would want us to look at the song lyrics and then oh, darkness, my old friend. Exactly. And he would want us to like 
say what we thought our interpretation of it was. And no matter what anybody put on their paper, we were always wrong. He was like, no, he was talking mm -hmm. about this, this, this. And I was mm -hmm. like, how are you going to tell me mm -hmm. that that was like, you weren't, yep. didn't write it. How do you know specifically what, and, and I failed the class. And my dad's like, how are you failing this class? I'm like, because no matter what anybody writes down, we're always wrong. It's like, it yep. didn't, it didn't connect, but I'm kind of like you, Nicholas, like, but my earliest knowings of poetry is probably from this movie of, you know, reading it and, and, Glean, gleaning from it your own interpretation of it not trying to necessarily know you know the using the scale <laughs> like yeah. in the like in the class right, of how to yeah. rate it whether it was great poetry or not great poetry because of some kind of scale instead of did it impact you that's just like i I like when the that teacher who becomes his friend when they're mm -hmm. having you know they're eating together mm -hmm. and he says you know that was quite a interesting um, lesson you had today and it, it ultimately ends with, you know, you're trying to make them artists. And mm -hmm. he says, well, not artists, but, you know, free thinkers. Yeah, yeah. And, like, that's exactly what this movie is. You mm -hmm. know, even though it deals with the poetry and them writing the poetry, and even though it deals with um, with Neil, you know, choosing his love for acting and all, it's not about them becoming artists. It's about them feeling... Mm -hmm and and think and going with what they feel right right and that's to me that that's the uh such a good message which i picked up on like mm -hmm. i said when i was in middle school yeah yeah i watched this movie in school to <laughs> when i'm even watching it now like that's that's truly what it's all about yeah and i yeah. absolutely love that message yeah i did like how most of the guys all like overcame some kind of fear or some kind of you know what if you know of kind of tapping into their emotions you know of course charlie yeah. goes a little goes a little overboard and knocks with you know trying to steal another guy's girl which works out for his favor at the end but i think the 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 part for me i remember the suicide being very impactful for me when i watched it as a kid of course when i saw it 89 yeah i was like going from middle school into high school so I was old enough to kind of understand the impact of that, but watching it as an adult, I'm not sure I see how he, he jumped that far into that being his only option. I think I got it a little bit more. I mean, I, I mean, I, thankfully I, thankfully I didn't go to a school like that. Mm -hmm, right. Um, but you know, he, he, you know, kids, don't necessarily have the most foresight in the world. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I just, yeah, I, I um, acknowledge that for sure. So he he just gave a performance that blew the roof off, mm -hmm. and and yeah. and was like, finally, was like, I think this is it. This is finally like I have this passion, and because he, he's always been like, I don't want to be a doctor. I want to do mm -hmm. something else, and right, then he found right. his path. And then his father pushed his foot so hard. I mean, you know, Kurt Wood Smith, Mr. Perry or Red Foreman um, <laughs> is was the ultimate jerk. Like, I mean, he is a, just the ultimate oh, yeah. and, ter and yeah. terrible father and terrible husband because you could see how afraid the, the mom the, was the mom yeah. was of him. Yeah. yeah, because the mom, I think, wanted to be like, well, let just let him be in the play. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I think I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into that scene, but like because she was so afraid of him. She mm -hmm. wasn't about to speak up and say, you know, well, maybe, you know, you're being too hard or maybe, you know, and I, I think that because if you're already 
damaged through years of, of mental abuse, maybe physical abuse. We don't see any of that, but right. You know, there, you know, that if you can't see a future and, and you just had what you thought was your future taken from you. Mm -hmm. And, and as, as a, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing we're supposed to think that they're 16, 17. Yeah. Probably that. Well, that yeah. The, again, that teacher does say uh, artist at 17. So, okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you know, he's, he's 16, he's 17 and, and he thinks I'm going to be this great actor. I'm, this is my future. Like, I mean, he's, you know, give him a couple years and maybe he'll just be like, well, I enjoy it, but yeah. I am going to be a doctor or I'm going to be a lawyer, you know, whatever. But to see. He was a doctor know, on house. Yeah. <laughs> he became a doctor. Yeah. But, yeah. but to, uh, to, just, yeah. but to have what he saw his future just completely taken away from him, mm -hmm. everything destroyed his passion, yep. his love. He's, you know, and clearly he was not there mentally then the, there's a very real chance of of him yeah. going this is my only option i can't if mm -hmm. i can't do what i want to do there's no point in going on yeah and there probably also was a little bit of i'll show him you know yeah 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 I mean, I'm not saying it, it, it makes it right. I'm not no, saying no, no, I'm not asking, right. I don't want anybody to justify I'm, it for sure. Yeah. And no, but I, I'm saying like I I can I get it. Yeah. You know, you know. That makes that makes a lot of sense. And I think too, and I, yeah. I think I was thinking about this too. Like like you said, I thankfully I didn't come from that type of household. Like my parents were very supportive of me, you know. And then we've had conversations about are you sure you want to do that? You know, want don't you want to do something that's gonna be more you know, uh, financially stable with your life. But even with those conversations, I still felt like my parents wanted me to follow my dreams and wanted me to become the person that I was going to become who was artistic and who did like the arts and singing and acting and all that kind of stuff. So maybe that's why it's harder for me to see that, you know, from yeah. my perspective. And I'm, I'm don't, I mean, I, my parents were, were very, supportive of me yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Like they never tried to push me in anything. It's just my own struggles. I I can put myself in that mental yeah. state. You know? Yeah, I got you. I think, and you know, I, I know we've gone long enough and mm -hmm. so we're not going to get into, I don't, I don't want to get into this too deep, but yeah. each of the main and not even the main, because even when you include that one guy we talked about earlier that had the character arc, but wasn't a main each character. of yeah each of the boys represent a different quote unquote stereotype no yeah you you've got neil who is kind of the leader mm -hmm. but as as we we see here you know there there was a a mask he was putting on for most of the time and this is yeah there there's a lot of escapism for his character throughout i mean mm -hmm. even thinking about him throwing the death set and the way yeah, it kind of yeah. kind of has that <laughs> moment. Uh and then of course you got Todd, and we've talked enough about Todd. Mm -hmm. Uh you know, but you got Knox, you know, with the girl and you know, doing anything and everything for the girl. You got Charlie being, you know, he's trying to be cool. And uh I I will guarantee you one hundred percent that after he said, you know, the name is Nuanda and shuts mm -hmm. the door, that man cried. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Charlie cried mm -hmm. when that happened because again he he wants to be the cool tough guy but uh yeah again I don't want to get into too much of it I mean you've got the the follower with Cameron because you know I don't think they yeah. point out enough he does not stand up at the end 
Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, you got all these other characters. Like I said, we're not going to get into it, but I do think each character kind of represents a stereotype of the mindset that a lot of teenagers experience, like yeah, Nicholas yeah. is talking about. Yeah. And, you know, the screenwriter pulled it from, you know, he, he used a lot of his personal experiences and patterned the characters after people he knew. So, all right, we'll, we'll move on because, like I said, I know we're, we're, we're running a little long already. So let's hit a few trivia things and uh, we'll start wrapping this up. But I'll, I'll put mo- most of these in the show notes because we don't have a whole lot of time left. But um, I mentioned before, Peter Weir chose to shoot the film in chronological order to better capture the development of the re- relationships between the boys and their growing respect for Mr. Keating. Following this line of reasoning after the shooting scene in which Neil uh, kills himself, Peter Weir kept Sean Leonard... Uh, kept Robert Sean Leonard off the set and didn't let him communicate with the other actors in order to create a real sense of losing a friend, which I see can be very effective. The poem by Henry David Thoreau that is featured on the front page of the poetry book Neil Receives is not an original poem by Thoreau. Rather, it is a rearrangement of sentences from his work, Where I Lived, chapter two from his seminal work, Walden. The passage containing the quote seen in the movie actually reads, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear, nor did I wish to practice resignation unless it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life to live so sturdily and Spartan like as to put to rout all that was not life thought it fitting to read some poetry on the podcast. (laughs) And then last little trivia thing, because of the huge popularity of the movie, there was a short movie sequel planned with Todd Anderson following the footsteps of his mentor. The movie was canceled due to the unavailability of the original cast, which I'm glad this was not a sequel movie. Yeah. No, (laughs) not a sequel. No, no, I'm glad a sequel didn't happen, but I do think I would have liked a postscript. But, yeah, to kind of yeah, see Todd where Anderson went yeah. on. Todd Anderson yeah, yeah. went on to do this, or so and so went on to do that, or yeah, you know, I would have liked that, but a sequel would have, you know, cheapened. Yeah, it. I did feel like when when it, when the movie was over, I did feel I don't say say cheated, but I was like, I really want like you, I really wanted to know like what happened next. Like it was such a kind of I'm not a cliffhanger ending, but uh, no. it was such a sudden ending that I felt like you know where did Mr. Keating go from there? What happened? All you know. The the head match like you're all going to be expelled. Did they yeah. all get expelled? Like what actually happened? But well, you know, I there's, I will admit that there's the part at the end where the I forgot which student it is, but glances over at the empty desk, and for a second there you think, okay, that's representing Neil, but it's mm-hmm. not. That's Charlie's desk, mm-hmm. and so it is showing Charlie did get expelled. Mm-hmm. Um. And he's no longer there. And I, I don't right. think that's that's clear enough. I don't yeah. think because you really yeah. have to remember that that was Charlie's desk mm-hmm. uh, to not realize that that's not just a reference to the fact that you know Neil is no longer with them. But yeah, I I honestly thought the same thing. Like I wanted just something. But I'll be honest with you, dear. I don't know how long it was into my life when I found out this wasn't based on a true story oh wow okay so if you if you had that little post little thing mm-hmm. of 
you know, knocks over street ended up marrying Chris mm, and they had right. lived happily ever after. And right. oh, bunking. Um, I probably would have still thought it was based on a true story. Gotcha. I just, I, I would have liked to, you know, maybe have a little bit more with, um, a postscript, like forcing the, you know, red to, uh, come to terms with the fact that it was his essentially his fault, not the teacher. Right. See, I, I don't, I, I really, with the exception of that one teacher, I do like that none of the adults have a, de- a character development. Because correct me if I'm wrong, even when uh, Hurtwood Smith's character, uh, Mr. Perry, mm-hmm. even when he is, his wife comes in and is saying, doesn't he tell her to be quiet or something? Like she's getting hysterical and he... I'm pretty sure he just I think so. Yeah. That scene ends remember. with her t- him telling her to be quiet. Yeah. Possibly or stop like I said, it or something like that. Yeah. I mean, which like, really still emphasizes he isn't changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I will say that if anybody deserved to be punched in the face, <laughs> good old Meeks deserved that punch in the face. No, that was yes. Cameron. Was it? It was no, Cameron. Yeah, it, it was, was Cameron. Cameron. I had a hard time yeah. keeping the character name straight. Quite yeah, there were, yeah, two. Yeah, two of them were very similar. Like their but, looks were very but similar. Meeks had glasses. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Meeks yeah. had glasses. Yeah. Cameron. Cameron was the one. Yeah. Cameron was the one that looked like. Uh, yeah, it looked like. Sometimes he had the the flat top and the freckles. And yeah. 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 You know what? There's a cartoon character that's coming to mind, but I cannot place it. <laughs> I was Archie. thinking the same thing. I was like, "There's, there's a character, yeah, that that, that the, he fit that look, but I can't think of what it is, uh, or some or another movie that I've seen." So, yeah, something uh, like that. All right, well, let's jump into box office and critical reception and wrap this puppy up. So, Dead Poet Society opened in limited release in North American theaters on June second, nineteen eighty nine, and then went wide on June ninth. It came in third at the box office behind Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which was in its third week of release at number two. And Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, debuted at number one that week. Although the film never actually cracked the number one spot at the box office, it still grossed $95 million domestically and over $235 million worldwide. So still a success, but never, never made it to number one. Rotten Tomatoes has it at 84% on the tomato meter with a 92% audience score. And one of the few times on the podcast, IMDb, an 8.1 out of 10 with viewers and a 79 on Metacritic. I've never seen the two that close together, I think, uh, on one of these movies. Metacritic didn't give it a 30. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But I mean, this, this is one of those rare films that critics and audiences both really liked which I think yeah. is is one of those rare uh, unicorn movies. But uh, what do you for for you guys? Eighties or nineties? Which which would you? Is it an A or a B for you guys? I I put it in the the mid eighties. I I mean, I think I had to move it down a little bit on on the watching at this time because I just I was noticing some things and it doesn't. It's still really good and still really well done, but there are a couple of things I think don't hold up as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it, it it was still. I mean, I'm I curious. Still, for instance, <laughs> it's like here comes counterpoint. Um, um, well, I I mean, I say that, but I don't have. I didn't write anything down. Well, like the one scene that really threw me off because I was trying to do the math and trying to figure out when when they were in the cave, and he started. It wasn't it wasn't rap per se, 
Yeah, I'll give you that one. Yeah, but it was like it doesn't. That is kind of an anachronism because I don't. But I but I was trying to figure. I know rock and roll had been around for a couple years at that point, but I didn't think that like you know Lou Reed style rock and roll and punk had quite existed <laughs> yeah. then. But it was just there was just a couple minor little. It, it's one of those things that like if I have to watch a movie, a lot of times I'm gonna start nitpicking. And and I could there are a few things I could nitpick here and there, but overall it's still probably one of my my favorite Robin Williams movies. I mean, I don't you know I just I can't give it a ten, but I'm not I'm not going any lower than like an eight. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. yeah, I, I yeah yeah I thought the same thing about the rapping thing, and which I even I even had to think about when uh, Robin Williams is doing like the Brando impersonation. Yeah, yeah. Is I had to think, but no, no, because Brando actually played Julius Caesar, so, <laughs> uh, and that was in the fifties, so mm-hmm. it worked. Or no, he played Mark Anthony, but that was in the fifties, so it worked. Um, but he was in Julius Caesar. Um, for me though, it's it it would be upper eighties. Yeah, I was trying to decide whether I would hit into the nineties, and I don't. So I looked it up. Uh, for those of you who don't know this website, it's called Flick Chart. Yes, and I looked it up. It is in my top 100 on okay. Flick Chart, but it's 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 97. So, I mean, I could probably go in and and re uh, re- regrade it or re- yeah. Now that I've now, now that I've watched it again, I could probably go through and re rank it again. But it is in my top 100. The as we talked about earlier, the rewatchability factor probably holds it down. Yeah, because again, yeah. this is not a movie I'm gonna just be wanting to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because of how heavy it is, but yeah, I agree with Nicholas. It's one of the best Robin Williams movies, uh, even though it's not, you know, a highly comedic role. The man is still an amazing actor, and again, the the story, it just overall story that it tells is great. And yeah, so I would I would give it upper eighties. Yeah, I I put it up on my flick chart. It's not in my top one hundred, but that's probably because I hadn't seen it as recently, so I haven't kind of push it up too much but i do have it as like an 8.9 out of a 10 but pretty much like you said laramie it's for me and i I read a lot of my stuff by rewatchability it's a fantastic movie it's impactful it was impactful for me as a kid so it's gonna be like one of those that i you know hold close to my heart but it's not a movie that i'm gonna want to rewatch on a regular basis but it would be one of those movies that i've met somebody and has never seen it I'd be like, you have to watch this movie. And I would, you know, I would watch it with you because yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I want you to experience it. So I think, it, I, I'm, I think that's, I, I don't, I can't put it in the nineties because of the rewatchability, but definitely upper eighties. So I think that's kind of where we all are. Uh, yeah, no, I would agree with that. But as a side note for a different project, we have to come up with the uh, idea of that. It was 1989, one of the greatest years for movies of all time. It's a Batman. Yeah, yeah. No, not just Batman. Look through. Batman. The, I did because I, I I saw this movie came out in 1989. I saw where it finished, like in the top ten of like mm-hmm. you know grossing, and I was like, oh my goodness, looking through the top ten. And then I just read through like the top hundred grossing movies of like 1989, and I'm mm-hmm. like, this might be the greatest year that's ever existed for <laughs> movie. And now, granted, I also did no other research to back that uh, that sentence up. Right. So, like, if somebody came at me and said 2004, I wouldn't be able to fight you. <laughs> but um, 
I just I'm looking at 19, you know, looking at 1989 and seeing some of the movies that barely cracked the top 50. And you're like, how did yeah. that movie not crack the top 50? Because <laughs> yeah. if it came out in 1990, yeah, you got this, you got Batman, 10, you know. Yeah, I think there's there's a couple of like 80s groups that like 84 people want to say is the best. And then there's other people that say 87. And then there's some that's 89. So, yeah, I think there's there's some uh, there's some debates that are out there, but we won't. Yeah, we definitely won't get into it now. But but as I, this podcast proves, the 80s are awesome. As, absolutely. No doubt about it. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for joining the podcast. Uh, Laramie Nicholas, briefly. I'll start with Laramie. What's going on with moving panels in September? Yeah, you guys coming back uh, so we can <laughs> finally talk about the uh, our winner of the 90s bracket. There you go. Black. Yes. Got that coming up, so looking forward to that. Cool. What's going on over at Pop Culture Roulette, Nicholas? Uh, we're getting close to episode 100, so we're, I'm trying to nail down exactly what we're doing with that. Not quite ready to, to make that. I think I'm going to hold that until... We actually do 100. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a couple little things here or there. I'm working on a pop culture vehicle bracket. It's going to be another massive bracket because, you know, if anything, pop culture roulette loves brackets. So Yes, you do. Cool, cool. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for being a part. Be sure to check out both moving panels and pop culture roulette if you haven't already. Be sure to follow, subscribe, rate, and review the show. You can always support the show through buymeacoffee.com. Please buy a t-shirt or sweatshirt from the website or tpublic.com. Uh, we do have a new email address, so you can reach out to us at info at 80sflickflashback.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone who loves 80s flicks. You can follow us on social media. I'm now just on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. I'm doing away with X, formerly known as Twitter, and Threads because there's no activity on both those social media platforms People for me anymore. Given up on that. Yeah, I've given up on them. So find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Thanks, you guys, for being here. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Tim Williams for 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Good night, good people. still here? It's over. Go home. Go.